Hello and welcome to On Wisconsin Workforce. I'm Caleb Frostman, your host and secretary of the Wisconsin Department of Workforce Development. I'm here to talk about workforce development and economic development here in our great state of Wisconsin. Today on On Wisconsin Workforce, I'll be talking with interns here at DWD, Terry Hayden, president of Wisconsin Pipe Trades Association and co-chair of the Apprenticeship Advisory Council. I'll also discuss tourism with none other than the Department of Tourism Secretary, Sarah Meany, and Wisconsin's deer season with Department of Natural Resources Secretary, Preston Cole. Well, we are very lucky to be joined this afternoon by some of our interns here at DWD to learn about what they've learned uh, as part of their internship with the agency uh, and maybe some advice they give to next year as interns. So I'll start it off with uh, maybe some introductions. Why don't we start with Bailey? Tell us uh, which division you're in and what you do. So my name is Bailey. I'm a communications specialist intern for the secretary's office and I do a lot of work with press releases, event planning, and just general kind of revising and editing a lot of documents here at DWD. My name is Zach. Um, I'm a communications specialist intern with DVR. So my primary responsibility was planning NDEAM events in October, National Disability Employment Awareness Month. And so we planned 25 events throughout the state of Wisconsin in October. And now I'm kind of shifting into a role where I'm helping out as needed, website redesign, um, publications list, stuff like that. Hi, my name is Kayla. Um, I am the Program and Policy Analysis Intern under the DET Employment and Training Division. I've done quite a bit under the division since it's under the Administrative's Office. I've got to help launch a program that we had announced on Monday for veterans in the workforce. I've done a lot of the website redesign work and just getting to know a lot of the division and helping out what they need whenever they need it. I know all of your uh, division administrators have really enjoyed having you work for them. I think really lucky to have you folks stick around through the school year. It's been great. We had you in the summer, but now you're still here in November, which is great for us and hopefully great for you. Um, At this point, a couple months in, what would you say has been either the most rewarding or the most valuable part of your internship here? I would say my, the most valuable experience I've had is just the connections that I've made so far. The people I've worked with have been amazing. They've are very helpful. It's great to have those connections moving on into the next stages of my career. I would say a lot of the same, just all of the connections I've made, everyone's been very friendly and very helpful. I want to do program and policy analysis, you know, one day in the future, so it's been very nice to actually figure out that I do like doing this and having sort of mentors along the way to help me. I would say it's been really great hands-on experience so far, and I've really enjoyed being able to apply what I've learned in my classes so far. And it's kind of reaffirmed for me that communications is definitely the field that I want to go into, and I really enjoy this type of work. What advice would you interns give to next year's interns here at DWD? What would be some things that would have been good to know in the front end, or what are some of the things that have helped you be most successful that would help someone else next year? Well, I would say it's definitely important to be on the Puppy Day mailing list. I learned early on that I was not on the mailing list. My coworkers did help me out, and I made sure I got it to Puppy Day on time. And for those listening, Puppy Day uh, is when a local animal shelter brings puppies up for adoption into our building here at Jeff One, and it's a very heartwarming, uh, uplifting experience for all involved, and nobody wants to miss Puppy Day. I would say definitely familiarize yourself with all of the good restaurant options downtown Madison and just kind of really take advantage of the area. Over the summer when we would do lunch and learns with some of the staff here at DWD, one question we would always make sure to ask is what is your favorite restaurant in Madison? So definitely take advantage of that and just kind of enjoy the downtown atmosphere. So you guys have been on the job for about five or six months at this point. What are some of the things you've you've either learned or experienced that you'll take with you to your next job, whether that's here at DWD or elsewhere? What are some of the things you'll bring with you in your next role? So since I've worked a lot with um, helping plan one of the programs I learned about like connecting and trying to get 
people from different departments together since we've worked with the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Veterans Commerce in Milwaukee. So it's been very valuable to get that experience of planning and having people beside me help me get through that. And uh, I've also done a lot of planning with the WIOA Roundtable in Green Bay, so that's been, it's a lot of work, but it's nice seeing the behind the scenes of that for the future. Yeah, I'm kind of going along with that, um, the theme of planning. Uh, in planning end events, it's a monstrous task. There are 25 events throughout the month. I'm talking to 25 different people, and we're communicating back and forth with the business about setting up these events. I learned that it's very key to be organized. It's, well, it's cool to see the behind the scenes. It's also cool to see the outcomes of these events. Um, we had a couple events that were covered by local news stations, and it's really cool to see the articles and the videos that come out of those. So it's a very rewarding process. I would say the social media experience has been really helpful. I think in our digital society today, that's something that's definitely not going anywhere, and it's a really great skill to have. And I think being able to not only work with social media itself, but kind of some of the planning softwares that go behind the scenes with that. I think that's a really great skill to have. Well, thank you all very much for taking some time out of your busy Friday afternoons to talk with us here in Ottawa, Wisconsin Workforce. We appreciate it. We appreciate your hard work, and uh, we're glad you're interns here at DWD. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. The week of November 11th is National Apprenticeship Week, and my guest today is Terry Hayden, a former steamfitter apprentice himself. Terry is the president of Wisconsin Pipe Trades Association and co-chair of Apprenticeship Advisory Council. Terry, thanks for being here today. We'd love to have you start by giving us a little bit about your experience as an apprentice back in the day. It was a, a number of years ago, Caleb. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it really is a great story. At least I think it is. You know, I was I was a young young man. I was married, had two children, and got caught up in a corporate downsizing and, and found myself trying to figure out where I was going to go. Fortunately, I found an opportunity in a career that, that had apprenticeship. And uh, uh, so after after working a, a little while in the trade, uh, uh, just to get some experience as a pre-apprentice, I had the opportunity to start a steam fitter apprenticeship, uh, which is five years in length. Uh, and, and I was just absolutely amazed by the content of, of, of the curriculum and, and the education that I got to make me a, a you know, a, 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 what I feel is a, it was, was a pretty good journeyman out in the field. Mm-hmm. Steam fitters all in the same night school class. But as the industry changed, uh, it got to be more and more technical, got to be uh, to where there was less time on on, on job sites for really direct training, uh, not not that it, it went away, but there just wasn't as much time to have you know uh, constant oversight. And you know schedules got tighter. There got to be less people on construction sites uh, just due to efficiency. And and so the biggest change I've seen in the construction side of, of the industry anyway is that that the trades have gone to you know having to do much more of that training themselves. And and hence we've seen the proliferation of all these training centers across the state and, and you know millions of millions of dollars invested to train that future your workforce to, to go out there and do a great job every day, be the best skilled, most productive workforce uh, that, that we can deliver. Great. I've had the privilege of seeing a number of these training centers, and they truly are spectacular uh, in terms of what these people are learning, the, the investment in the equipment and the time. Uh, they really are fantastic facilities. So very, very cool. And so we talked about your experience and how it's changed uh, over the years. You know, from your perspective, from your chair, how do you see the future of apprenticeship going? The rest of the country kind of modeled themselves after us. Uh, you know, for years, it was a lot of the, the skilled trades was, was a lot of apprenticeship. Manufacturing, obviously, a, a, a big user of apprenticeship, but we've seen a lot of growth in apprenticeship into what what would typically have been non-traditional fields such as IT, financial services, healthcare. Simply because the model works so well, you you can take an entry-level individual and build them up over time with a graduated pay scale. So as as they can produce more and do more, they see an increase in wages, and so it's good for the employer to be able to build that workforce 
to fit their needs. And so I, I see apprenticeship continuing to evolve and continuing to grow just because it's such a good workforce development model. You know, if someone's looking to start a new career, or make a career change, you know, why should they consider the trades and why should they choose apprenticeship? Well, the, the, the trades offer very fair family supporting wages, you know, good good retirement savings, uh, uh, health insurance. So it's meaningful employment. People can enter into the trades and, and actually have a career that they can have their entire life. And if a company moves or relocates out, out of the area, there's other companies that fill that void and, you know, tradespeople go to work for them. Uh, but but it's the, that skill set that an individual gets through apprenticeship that continues to keep them uh, uh, employable, you know, in the field that they're in. You know, certainly the workplace will continue to evolve and change with technology and, and the learning always continues. But, but apprenticeship really sets that foundation to be the best in their trade when they complete apprenticeship, as well as that foundation to build on throughout their entire career. Very, very compelling. And we hear from folks all the time that get so much out of uh, being an apprentice. What does apprenticeship provide from the business perspective? If you're a business owner, you know, how does the apprenticeship training model help your business? Well, if, you know, if, if I look at our employers and start the conversation there, our employers rely on us to deliver that, that skilled and qualified workforce. And we have people that retire every day and, and everybody knows that, you know, the, the size of the workforce that's currently retiring is a little bit larger than the size that's, that, that's coming in right now. And so there's a lot of competition for workers. And so, you know, with that, you know, employers, you know, need to have that foundation. They, they need to have that, that pipeline of qualified individuals to, to fill their, their requirements within their companies. Apprenticeship can do that. Uh, you know, apprenticeship is, is a nimble program that, you know, with the trades, we've been established for many, many years and our programs are anywhere from three to five years in length and structured accordingly. But, but in other industries, the apprenticeship actually fits those particular industries and those employers' needs. You know, we, we've, we've seen apprenticeship structure shift from being purely hour-based uh, and, and, and time-based to competency-based to, to fit different employer models to a combination, a hybrid model where it's time and, and competency-based. Apprenticeship is, is kind of the best-kept secret. People think it's just uh, if you're going to be a plumber or a steam fitter or a skilled trades worker that you go into apprenticeship, but really it's a model that can be fit into any employer or any industry needs to be able to bring up that future workforce and deliver those those qualified people that every employer needs. And we hear that as we travel the state that, you know, folks looking for that living wage, looking for meaningful gains in their skills, find so much value from apprenticeship, as do the employers who get these highly trained employees trained in their methods, trained in, in their company's, you know, work ethic and, and values. And so we, we see a really strong uh, win-win there everywhere we go. You, you touched on it at the very uh, end of that last question, but um, are there any other myths about apprenticeship that you'd like to debunk, things you want to set straight about the apprenticeship program? Well, well certainly. And, and, and I've been fortunate to be involved in apprenticeship for many, many years. Uh, you know, starting when I went th- with, with my steam freighter apprenticeship. After that, I, I, I started working uh, as an instructor and, and taught apprentices, became a training director, and and now I'm fortunate enough to actually serve on the Wisconsin Apprenticeship Advisory Council. With, with that, we have all labor, industry, education. We have so many people at the table that continue to to evolve apprenticeship to make it fit what we need today. So coming back to myths, there's there's an understanding. That, that apprenticeship is rigid, that it only fits in certain boxes or within certain industries, and, and, and simply it's, it, it's not the case. Apprenticeship is a nimble model that will evolve to fit any industry's needs from the workforce side or from the worker side uh, or from the company side, employers that, that need that qualified workforce. Regardless of what industry it is, people, you know, employers are looking for not only somebody with education, but also with experience, and that's what apprenticeship delivers. It's giving the education side 
side of it, but also that actual workplace experience. So an employer can actually work with an individual or individuals, and they actually have their hands on doing work in the, in the employer's uh, place of business and, and get trained to be what the employer needs. So I, I think it's an ideal model to train a workforce. There's many you know, other ways to do it, but I don't know if there's a more efficient way to train a, wor- a future workforce. Yeah, we, we feel very similar. We talk a lot about focusing on the quantity of jobs in Wisconsin and making sure those are quality jobs, and we've not found anything better to this point than apprenticeships. So also very bullish on that earn and learn model, so we're really grateful that you're here to share your experience with it. Terry, thanks so much for coming today. We appreciate it greatly. Oh, it's truly my my pleasure, Caleb. I'm I'm so happy to be here and and, and spend a little time with you. Well, thanks so much. I'm now joined by Sarah Meany, Secretary of the Wisconsin Department of Tourism. Sarah, welcome to the show. My first question for you is, what's the total economic impact of tourism in Wisconsin and about how many visitors do we see every year? More than $21.6 billion in uh, economic impact, and it supports over 199,000 jobs throughout our state. So every day when I come to work, I'm reminded that the work we do matters. It matters to families and it matters to people's experiences when they come to the state to experience it. But what's what's also important is that with very limited dollars, we have to make it really work. Um, And our return on investment is that for every dollar spent on tourism promotion to get people to come to the state of Wisconsin, $7 come back in tax revenue. And at a seven to one return, we think that's pretty good odds, certainly better than any of my stocks are doing these days. In in 2018, we saw about 112 million visitors to our state. So it's a wonderful baseline that we're looking forward to continue to build upon. Yeah, as a former banker, seven to one is a pretty good return. I think we'll keep trying to do that. Yeah, that's a good, a good <laughs> good place to put our dollars. Uh-huh. Um, I know our, our state is known for beautiful lakes, uh, more than Minnesota, although that's controversial. Ooh, Be- I'm just <laughs> yeah. Be- beautiful lakes, uh, state parks, rolling hills, and we have some really vibrant ur- urban centers in Wisconsin too. What is your favorite place to visit in Wisconsin? That's like asking me which of my kids is my favorite. <laughs> Had to ask. We all know that I have one, but I'm never going to tell anyone. Right. No, right. I'm just kidding. I don't really like one more than the other. Uh, honestly, my answer is the same. I love water. I want to be on, in, or near the water, however that's defined. I mean, the fact that we have this incredibly beautiful state surrounded basically on three sides by massive bodies of water from, um, you know, the wonderful, beautiful uh, Mississippi River to Lake Superior uh, to our north and, of course, to the east, uh, the incredible Lake Michigan. And more than 15,000 inland lakes. Uh, It's something that we are definitely lucky to have in our state and I for one am not one that takes it for granted. Huge fan of water myself being a Green Bay guy and having lived in Door County water's where it's at. It is. That's awesome. It is. Well here's another controversial question and maybe we'll say what are some of your favorite state parks plural <laughs> to visit um, you know why should family cons- families in Wisconsin or coming to Wisconsin uh, consider we can get away uh, at one of or all of our awesome state parks here in Wisconsin? Well, it's a great question. Um, I have a lot of really wonderful childhood memories at a variety of Wisconsin state parks. My family definitely was the family with the uh, stickers lined up on the side of the windshield. <laughs> um, not sure why we never took them off, but it was almost a badge of honor, right, on the, the station wagon. So outdoor recreation is one of the top reasons why people say they come to the state of Wisconsin, and certainly our state parks contribute to that. Um, we have incredible natural beauty, and nearly 50% of our state is covered in forest and with the rivers and lakes that we have people want to get outside and experience it 
It's an opportunity that we as a state tourism entity, I think we've only scratched the surface. I think we have an opportunity to really do even more with that. And the creation of the Office of Outdoor Recreation has put us in a position to do that, not just to attract visitors, but also to drive, you know, attraction of businesses and attract talent. I mean, our worlds overlap in that way. When, when we have a wonderful, beautiful, um, highly accessible outdoor recreation scene, it's easier to get people to come here and stay here. It's easier to keep people here after they graduate from technical school or, or um, you know, post-secondary education. We know that we need to do uh, more to make sure that people know what we have to offer and make sure that we take care of what it is that we have to offer. That's an important piece of it. So what's my favorite state park to visit? I have to say I'm making a concerted effort to get to every single one of our state parks. It's sort of one of my bucket lists in this role. I think I've been to a lot of them just in my life mm-hmm. altogether, but I started over wow. as of the beginning of, of this um, this position. And so far, it's a couple dozen that I continue to add to, but I think some of my favorite family, like growing up memories, took place both at Newport State Park in uh, Door County and then also at Devil's Lake, which is yeah. both the largest and the most highly visited state park in the state of Wisconsin. Um, so a lot of really fun memories of, of hiking and, uh, you know, um, um, just having a really good time with my family, but also camping with friends in college and beyond. So um, state parks in Wisconsin are second to none, and we, uh, we're really lucky to have them. Um, a less controversial question for you. So <laughs> why why should Wisconsin be considered a four-season four tourism destination? Uh, what is your favorite uh, activity uh, or destination to enjoy in each of our four seasons. Yeah. It's like a three-parter. I'm yeah. happy to do yeah. that. Yeah, let's keep track well, of that. Well, so Wisconsin already is a four-season destination. We've we've uh, been lucky enough to see some pretty consistent visitation across all four quarters of the year. And um, we see a slight dip in overnight travelers uh, through the winter for a few reasons, but we don't roll up our sidewalks in Wisconsin just because, you know, the leaves fall and snow falls. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's when a lot of us come alive again yeah. and again. The activities don't aren't limited by the temperature uh, on the thermometer. So because we have so many state parks, because we have so many wonderful lakes and rivers, uh, the activities abound even in fall and winter. So um, everything from fat tire biking and snowmobiling, you know, from silent sport to motorsports, that that crosses over from being a top downhill skiing destination. We actually are the state with the third largest number of downhill skiing resorts in the entire country. Wow. Uh, you're giving me a wow look. Yeah, I didn't expect it's that. It's true. Yeah, we do have a lot of places. Uh, it's one of the reasons why um, Midwestern skiers often are, or, or some of the top skiers in the world and in, in the country, often come from the Midwest because it's accessible, it's affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, we have such an abundance of an offering and consistently we have snow available. So I think that's an important thing for people to, to keep in mind. But also our, our lodging and our um, entertainment indoors and outdoors doesn't slow down just because the temperature drops. So, you know, the data is basically telling us that um, in the winter, our overnight visitors dip only slightly to an average of about 21 and a half percent of our total visitation over the year. Mm -hmm. And that's for overnight visitation. But really, it's about 24 percent for day trippers, even during the winter. Um, I think that tells us that people do like what we have in the Mm -hmm. winter, that they are seeking what we have, uh, even in the colder months. And I think we have a lot to build on from there. I I was surprised by the downhill 
downhill skiing, but I was also surprised to learn that uh, Wisconsin, specifically the Eastern Shore, was such a freshwater surfing destination. Yes, it is. Yeah. That story is starting to get out even more. I think it's an important thing for people to know. The fact that Sheboygan, the Sheboygan area, is known as the Malibu of the Midwest. Isn't that wild? <laughs> I know. I've told friends and family, like, whatever, you're just saying that because it's your job. No, it actually is a very well-known spot mm. because the quality of the waves and the fact that it's so different. Um, yeah. Freshwater surfing and ocean surfing are certainly not the same thing and it's not for the faint of heart but the word definitely is getting out and there are a lot of fans and supporters of freshwater surfing that come to our shores to check it out and the high season for surfing is actually the fall and winter yeah, I have, a, I have a friend that's very into it in Door County, and he, I went along with him uh, like Labor Day weekend in 2017, and it was not pretty. It was, I mean, my <laughs> surfing was not pretty. The day was pretty. My surfing was not pretty. Uh, uh-huh. It was a gorgeous day to be outside. I won't be doing it again until I get better core strength and make better it flexibility. A bucket, but, make it a bucket yeah. list thing for you, but I mean, um, I grew up in a part of town, in a part of the state where um, we actually have a surf shop just oh, wow. down the street, and one of the local high schools actually offers surfing in the winter as an extension of the um, physical education program that's, that's required for students and you see them heading down to the beach and learning a skill that's definitely, uh, it's not an easy one to learn, but it's its definitely really great exercise. And of course, I mean, you can't forget the Brookabiner, which is the world's yes. second yes. largest cross-country ski race. Um, I actually committed to doing the half Berkey nice. this coming February. I keep saying it out loud so I can't back out. <laughs> uh, that's a 29K race, but the full length okay. is 52K race wow. on cross-country skis. It is an absolute mecca for people who love the outdoors doors in the winter and of course summertime could not be better it's not as hot as the icky spots in in uh, hotter spots in the country uh, and we have a ton of things to do so well, that's awesome mm-hmm. well, very cool uh, and our last question for you wisconsin uh, has been known for a while i think continues to grow in its reputation for being the land of the festival you know what are some of the festivals that our state is known for mm-hmm. and which ones are you going to be enjoying coming up and why do you go to those oh my gosh well I grew up going to Summerfest, which is the world's largest music festival. And a lot of people say, oh, come on, really? It's sort of like the ski question. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, yes, really. The number of venues uh, available, the number of people, the number of bands, the number of gigs that are played in Summerfest's run each year is second to none. And I think it's an important thing that people continue to know about it. And it really does put Wisconsin on the map for the music scene and the arts and culture scene in a lot of ways. It's it's an 11-day festival, eight hundred acts, more than 800 acts on 12 different stages, and it's on uh, a really beautiful uh, spot on Milwaukee's lakefront. And then, for the first time, I actually attended EAA Air Venture this this year, this past summer. This year, they hit another record attendance, 642,000 people attended EAA Air Venture this year, 70 countries. Uh, They come from 70 different countries. They all converge on Oshkosh. Uh, One of my favorite little trivia questions that I like to bring up sometimes when we're talking about it is um, that, true or false, does Wisconsin have one of the world's busiest airports? The answer is true for 11 days. Yeah. (laughs) More flights in and out and landings take place during EAA Air Venture uh, in Oshkosh than anywhere else in the world. Wow. Uh, which is pretty days. fascinating, right? Yeah. So all of those experimental aircraft folks that are flying in to watch the show, um, and they show up, they bring their own planes, they camp underneath their planes, under the wings. It's really something to see. So people who haven't seen that should definitely check it out. But more than 10,000 planes are flying in and out That's uh, in that small time period. And of course, lacrosse, 
Wisconsin is known for its Oktoberfest, and that's over 150,000 people that descend on My cross goodness. for the Oktoberfest. Um, and, you know, of course, it's music, it's food, it's German culture, uh, it's a lot of fun. But really, I think specifically what people experience when they come to Wisconsin, when you think about all the festivals that we have, we have a festival for everything. Mm-hmm. It's a cultural attribute of people from Wisconsin. We show up for football in ways that people don't show up around the country. We show up for parties um, and we have just uh, an overwhelming sense of welcoming to people who are from elsewhere. So uh, it's something we all can be very proud of. And frankly, all you have to do is show up and uh, the party will follow. So uh, it definitely makes Wisconsin a really great destination, not just to come and play, but also to live and work. That's awesome. That's a good tagline. I might steal that for a Wisconsin slogan going hey, forward. Hey. That was great. I like it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much to uh, Sarah Meany, the Secretary of Tourism, sharing her thoughts with us today. We appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. You bet. Next up, I'm joined by DNR Secretary Preston Cole. Thanks for coming on DWD's podcast on Wisconsin Workforce. We're excited to have you on today to discuss one of my favorite times of the year, the nine days in November where thousands of hunters take to their stands to hunt the elusive whitetail. I honestly sometimes think I'd have better luck if I just drove my truck into the field and waited for one to run into me. Uh, But regardless, uh, we're really excited to have you here, and big bucks are big business for Wisconsin. What kind of economic impact does the nine-day gun deer season have on Wisconsin? Well, thank you, and I certainly appreciate the invite, and your listeners should know that you certainly are awesome hunter yourself. If you've ever seen any of the photos that I get, which is, <laughs> you know, a 250-pound bear or, you know, the deer that he's uh, taken. And so, you know, your, your, your listeners should know that uh, your organization, starting with the leadership, is a ripe organization full of hunters and people who care about the outdoors. And to that end, you know, the, the sum total of outdoor recreation, of which our nine-day gun deer hunt is part of, is an $18 billion industry. Uh, Around, um, you know, the nine-day deer hunt and how people get ready for it, the license sales, that's about a $1 billion economic impact spread across the state. People make their way, of course, uh, to the North Woods, but there's certainly uh, great hunting all over. And so we know that people enjoy the outdoors. These are long-held traditions from families going back tens of years. These are the kinds of things that we can count on in the state of Wisconsin each and every year to have a pivotal impact not only on the herd but on the culture of the state of Wisconsin. So it works for us in a multitude of ways. It's definitely been a huge part of the fabric of my life having grown up in Green Bay and spent time in the woods since I was 12. It's what I look forward to every year. So it is a, a huge piece of Wisconsin culture. Um, and it's a that's the case for a lot of folks in our state. And would be curious to know how many uh, hunters did our state see during last year's nine-day gun season? And, you know, based on preliminary uh, license sales and indicators, do we expect that number to be higher or lower this year? Well, that number is going to be uh, statistically lower. And we've seen that downward trend. You know, folks my age are uh, getting older. At the back end of the baby boomers, so we've seen a 2.2% decrease as compared to 2017. But however, we have a robust number of licenses that we sell. The licenses that we sell are 576,000 licenses to people who want to take a deer in the state of Wisconsin. And so we're proud of that fact that each and every year, people um, you know find their way to the state of Wisconsin are certainly people who live here. It's a big deal. 
But it's not only the nine-day gun hunt. We also have crossbows that are in play and, of course, uh, traditional bow hunting that goes on as well. And quite frankly, the crossbows have proven to be a very successful way to harvest a deer. And so we're taking a look at some of the metrics about how the crossbow is impacting uh, hunter success rates and those types of things. So the idea of the decreasing numbers is just sheer numbers as to the baby boomers, as I spoke to before. I think across the board and across the Midwest, uh, our sister agencies are seeing the same thing. And that's why it's so important for us to begin to recruit uh, and maintain those um, hunting populations in the state of Wisconsin. So we're actively engaged in doing those types of things. But, you know, Wisconsin is still in one of the top five states in the country uh, in terms of deer hunting sales. And, of course, it's excellent opportunities. It's habitat. You know, that's the backstory behind this is the reason that we have such a robust deer population is because we have a robust habitat that deer like. And we've made some changes over the years, and we think all those changes just point to doing the right thing on the landscape, creating habitat, working with counties, working with landowners who want to participate in many of our programs to provide that habitat is a win-win for people in the state of Wisconsin. Got uh 576,000 is a huge number. Does the DNR keep track? How many of those folks came from outside of Wisconsin? Do we have a percentage or a number? Well, 6% of those gun licenses were sold to hunters from outside the state. And, and that equates to about 34, almost 35,000 non-resident deer uh, gun licenses sold. And so um, that's a big deal for us. We would certainly like to grow that number. So for people who are listening to the podcast, tell your cousins and Minnesota and Illinois and Michigan or wherever they may come from, this is the place to be in the North Woods during our nine-day deer hunt. I know, you know I personally really just enjoy being outside. I really enjoy the excitement of seeing a deer. I love eating venison, but a big part of it also is the excitement of potentially seeing a, a large antlered buck. Um, so be curious if, if you guys have the, the records for the largest bucks taken with a go, uh, gun or a bow here in Wisconsin. Well, the largest typical buck taken continues to be the Jordan buck harvested by James Jordan in Burnett County in 1914 of all years. And the Boone and Crockett measurement on that was 206 and one-eighth inches. And so that's a big deal. And that's a big buck. And, you know, and it still holds at... Uh, so, you know, 1914 was a bumper crop year for a lot of big bucks taken. And so uh, the Jordan buck still is at the top of the pile. Whereas the largest typical buck taken with the bow was harvested in 2014, just about four or five years ago, measured 191 and 6 inches, and that was in Dodge County. And so, again, uh, for folks who want to do, you know, trophy buck hunting in the state of Wisconsin. We know people make their way to Burnett County, but there's big bucks all over. You just have to hunt for them. You got to get off that stand sometimes and move around, and you'll see big bucks all the time because, you know, quite frankly, everybody on their trail cam that has a trail cam has seen these monster bucks because we know, and so because of that, we know they're out there. So good luck. That's you can, a, I'm waiting for that record to come down. Yeah, know, from the 20 from 1914. It's time for it to be broken. Yeah, we don't have time for it in this podcast, but that buck has a pretty incredible story of 
the mountain was lost, it was stolen, it was recovered, and it was the world record until I think 1993. So it's a pretty pretty cool story. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you know the importance of recruiting, you know, retaining our hunters and recruiting new ones. Um, can you tell us what the DNR is doing to help get more maybe non-traditional hunters, you know, women, minorities, young people uh, interested in hunting? Yeah, the Department of Natural Resources participates in what we call our R3 program. It's a federal program. It focuses on recruitment, retention, and reactivation. And of course, it's focused at getting women, people of color, one, into the outdoors, but getting them hunting. And so these programs provide for the training and development and education where we get grant dollars to take folks on learn to hunt. There's another specific program called the Bow Program, uh, which was started by Christine Thomas, who's the Dean of School of Natural Resources in Stevens Point. That Bow Program is becoming an outdoor woman. Uh, and they do some really fun hunts and really f- cool fishing events. So for the young ladies and women who are um, listening today, go on uh, either the DNR website and look up the bow program. But these are, again, ways to get people who haven't been in the sport for a while, get them reactivated. And we want to make sure that we recruit the individuals that haven't had that opportunity through our Learn to Hunt programs. And those are big deals. Um for a lot of folks, specifically millennials who want who love our Hunt for Food program, and it's a way to put, you know, meat on the table, food on the table, protein on the table in such a way, you know, free from chemicals. And so we, we see a lot of popularity with our millennials in that regard. So it's not just hunting; it's also fishing and a multitude of outdoor activities. And I'm I'm proud of the fact that. You know, we haven't, we're not going to ever give up on the retention and the recruitment. Uh, can we do better? You better believe it. And so what we want is for people who represent, you know, um, you know, women and, and minorities and uh, youngsters out there to partner with the Department of Natural Resources so that message is clear and succinct. And that's quite frankly uh, the theme of the day is our partnerships with our non-traditional partner groups. Uh, many of those that reside in some of our urban areas, from Madison to Milwaukee to Beloit and Superior, Green Bay, you know, those uh, traditions run deep. And we think that folks should be participating in that because it's their tax dollars that are going to support, you know, the habitat, recruitment, retention, you know, our staff, time, energy, and effort putting towards this. And again, it's another way to spend a day or an afternoon out in the woods sitting very quietly and taking advantage of all the signs, the sounds uh, that someone's hearing. It really slows us down as, as people, as humans. You know, you typically find, uh, it's often talked about in our urban areas, um, you know, parks and big parks and what they do to slow us down and calm us down. Well, being in the outdoors does the same thing. Wisconsin is ripe with a robust landscape that provides those opportunities. So, but for getting out and hunting and fishing and doing those kinds of things, the simple act of getting out in the woods and enjoying nature will have positive benefits on one's psychology. And that's, that's not too often talked about, but I know what it does for me. It slows me down. Pretty incredible thing. Um, I know one of the big priorities of yours uh, has been bringing science back to the DNR. And, you know, on that topic, we hear a lot about chronic wasting disease. And just for our listeners, you know, what is the disease? How is it transmitted? And, you know, what are some of the impacts on the herd? Chronic wasting disease is a big deal in the state of Wisconsin. It uh, was found in Wisconsin back in the early 80s. Uh, it 
comes into our population coming from the West, and it's a, it's a big deal. It's something that we have to manage. It's a contagious and fatal neurological disease found in deer, elk, moose, reindeer, caused by an abnormal, abnormal protein called a prion. And these prions are just tanks. You know, we haven't been able, scientists haven't been able to replicate that prion in a lab setting because uh, that's the way that these types of uh, solutions are found. They can't reproduce it, which means that they can't throw everything at it to see how it activates and how we can take it down. And again, it causes, you know, brain degeneration in infected animals. So people may see deer, you know, out during the middle of the day staggering around. Those are types of uh, symptoms that you'll see. Exposure to CWD, it's pretty robust around the southern part of the state of Wisconsin, but we're drawing a fire line, you know, from across to the east side of the, of the state. And we're offering opportunities for folks to get their deer tested. There's been no known jump between humans and animals with CWD. However, we do advise that hunters test their deer. So in every county and many places, and then from the North Woods down to the southern farmland zones, we'll have places where individuals can get their deer tested and, uh, with kiosks. But what they can leave behind are the skulls for us to test as well as the spinal columns. The spinal columns hold more of the prions than we once knew. And so when folks are taking their deer, they typically will gut it and leave some of that, um, you know, uh, stuff on the ground. Well, while it's left on the ground, these are toxic sites because those prions are still in the animal. And quite frankly, we know that being in the soil, they last for a long period of time. So we're asking people to, one, get their deer tested, two, uh, what you don't use, bring to a dumpster and that we have in the counties around, in all 72 counties, and so they can get rid of their deer carcasses that way. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. You mentioned the importance of habitat and how you know, Wisconsin traditionally, between its mix of agriculture and its history of logging, really has prime, prime habitat for deer uh, in the state. So. You know, how does the DNR, you know, along with our landowners and other stakeholders, you know, ensure that Wisconsin continues to provide a really strong ecological system uh, to support one of our really strong economic drivers, which is deer hunting? Great question. The DNR has always managed habitat on public lands to benefit deer and other wildlife. That's actually what we do, and certainly for recreational opportunities. To further support that habitat management and recreation opportunities, the DNR provides programs for private landowners to further their understanding about wildlife habitat and deer management. And so they can apply that on their own properties as they learn to hunt as well. Uh, deer Management Assistant Programs, uh, affectionately known in the DNR as DMAP, connects landowners with local wildlife biologists and foresters, provide recommendations to help them achieve their property objectives and support wildlife resources that we all can enjoy. And so currently there's approximately almost 310,000 acres and 1,400 uh, landowners that are enrolled. And so these are again, as you heard me say earlier, partnerships with groups and the public. Uh, habitat is uh, creation and maintenance is all of our responsibility if we want to road bus deer population, these are the things that we have to do. Another program we have is the Voluntary Public Access Program, and which provides financial support to manage um, for habitat management practices to landowners who allow uh, property for, for the public uh, to enter onto. So that said, you know, 
if if you're short on cash, call the DNR. And you have 20 to 40, 50, 60 acres, call us, and we can offer you some opportunities to do some deer management while at the same time improving your properties and giving folks who may not have property of their own or a place to hunt. As we start to recruit and retention, those R3 programs are significant for us. But we have to have places for people to go. And people from our urban areas typically may have their family 40 acres or 140 acres. But know there's a lot of people out there that don't have a place to go. And so public lands become vital. And public lands, you know, get a lot of pressure during this time of year. And so uh, sometimes people just don't want to go to those. So, uh, again, each of these programs works with private landowners to manage their property in a strong, sustainable wildlife population. And that's part of our DNA is doing this type of habitat maintenance and restoration. And uh, we've kind of touched on this a little bit throughout the podcast, but if someone hasn't hunted before but is interested in going to try, uh, doesn't have the, you know, the family infrastructure of generations of hunters, you know, how does one do that? And you know, what does the DNR have in place to help support them as they prepare for their first hunt? I continue to be excited by Learn to Hunt programs, which combines classroom instruction and field time for someone new to the sport before they go out hunting and certainly with the mentor. It's a great way to introduce Wisconsin's hunting heritage. And of course, uh, it ranges from learning how to hunt pheasant, deer, and quite frankly, even some of our largest carnivores is bear. We need qualified mentors, so folks are listening to this. If you're good at what you do in terms of hunting, we need you, we want you. You know, it's like uh, Uncle Sam. We need you now. We want you now for these Learn to Hunt events. And what better way to uh, value these time-honored traditions but to have folks who have these skills to share that with youngsters and women and people of color who haven't had those opportunities. And if you want to make yourself feel good, well, you know, get involved in our voluntary program to help uh, and be a mentor. And so there are most important ingredient as part of our hunting are these mentors. And so if you're over 18 years of age with five years of hunting experience and you want to share your expertise with a novice uh, hunter, call us. I wish I had a 1-800-DNR number to put out, but we're pretty easy to find. And again, we um, are putting an all call out for those folks who are really good at it to spend some time with folks. It's kind of like the big brothers and big sisters of hunting. And so if we can provide those opportunities, we know these time-honored traditions will outlast all of us for many years to come. Well, Secretary Coley, thank you very much. I think it's a very deer hunting feeling type day out there today. I'm hoping the snow sticks around for two more weeks so you can see deer a little better, but we appreciate you swinging by. Well, thank you. And again, I'll share with your um, listening audience that you are a natural-born hunter and Uh, Again, you should see some of the uh, priceless photos that uh, Secretary Frostman has, and uh, he's he's our champion as it relates to the cabinet. So thank you for all your efforts and what you've done. And certainly putting this podcast out to your viewers and listeners is probably non-traditional, but that's what we do. We do non-traditional approaches to get people to understand the value of outdoor recreation and that uh, deer hunt that's about to start. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of On Wisconsin Workforce. If you want to learn more about the Wisconsin Department of Workforce Development, check out our website at www.dwd.wisconsin.gov. You can also follow us on Facebook or LinkedIn by searching for the Wisconsin Department of Workforce Development, and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at WIWorkforce. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Secretary Caleb Frostman, and this is On Wisconsin Workforce.